This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language, mature themes, misogyny, mind control, grooming of an adolescent by an authority figure, and abusive cultural values, including reproductive control, eugenics, glorification of military service, and indoctrination of adolescents. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 262. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and tell you what's new with my life and my writing. So let's get started, shall we? Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 3 in my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to Episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, the telepath Daniel Sharabi faced the judgment of the Metamore Hive, the local chapter of the Psy Collective. It was the end of Daniel's senior year at Westfall Academy, the secretive private boarding school where Hive members learn to control their powers. With his education complete, Daniel went through his exit examination to see how useful his psionic talents have become. Daniel's first test was to measure his telepathy by sending him into the Hive's group mind to look for a specific memory. Though Daniel was successful, the test was mentally and physically exhausting. After allowing him some time to rest and recover, the Hive administered the second test, measuring Daniel's psychic healing talent. This test was as simple as it was brutal. The Hive brought Daniel's half-sister, Stacy, to stand in front of him, and then slashed open the veins on her arms. Daniel rushed to heal the damage, again badly draining himself in the process. Daniel was furious at the Hive for putting his sister's life in danger, but as the Hive pointed out, the test had to be real in order to judge his capabilities. If he had failed, there were plenty of other healers in the Hive who could have stepped in to save her. The Hive's final assessment ranked his psychic healing at power level 4, roughly in the bottom 15% of the bell curve, and his telepathy at level 2, weaker than 98% of all other teeps. With such poor rankings, Daniel will not qualify for the breeding cells, the polyamorous family units that are the building blocks of collective life. The collective is engaged in a eugenics program, to breed the strongest size available. While every fertile female is considered valuable, regardless of power level, they don't want low-powered males watering down the gene pool. Daniel could see the possibilities for his future quickly slipping out of reach, so he made a bargain with the Hive. 
he would go to university for the next four years and do additional training to try to improve his psi talents. Usually, improving one's skill doesn't increase one's raw power, but sometimes talents do grow stronger with age, so the hive is willing to give it a try. But after four years, if he still can't qualify as a breeding cell husband, then he'll be required to join a bachelor cell and work for the hive until their investment in him is paid off. Outside the auditorium, Rebecca's ESP quickly discerned what had happened. She burst into tears. They're going to take you away from me, she said. Daniel tried to reassure her. I'm not giving up on us, he said. We'll come through this, and we'll do it together. Our story continues five years later. Making the Cut a novel of Metamore City. Written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 3 May 2nd, 1995, Christos Reckoning. Barnhart General Hospital, Valley North Borough, Metamore City. Daniel pushed his stool back from the workbench and sighed, rubbing his eyes wearily. There was no doubt about it. It was cancer, all right, and it was advanced. Another patient was about to get news she didn't want to hear, news that meant months or years of dangerous treatments, with toxins or radiation or death-aspected manna. You could get as mad as you wanted, cry as much as you wanted, but the tests didn't lie. The tests don't lie. Gods, don't I know it, he thought bitterly. He pulled the tissue sample out of the machine and threw it in the biohazard waste bin, then tapped in a few commands on the control panel to send the results of the test to his computer. Tomorrow morning, he'd type up a detailed report for the patient's primary physician and have the lab technician start culturing Mrs. Atherton's cancer cells. Given how much the disease had spread before they found it, the oncologists would probably want to start a treatment with a sympathetic curse, and for that they'd need a fairly large sample of the malignant tissue to work with. He'd need to make sure it was a pure sample, too. If they got any of her healthy cells mixed in, the curse might affect more than the cancer. He shook his head. There's something deeply screwed up about the world, he thought, when you have to resort to death magic to try to heal someone. Psychic healing powers like his weren't worth much when you were trying to fight something that was a corruption of the person's own body. A particularly mean-spirited corner of his mind laughed at that. Not that your powers are worth much anyway, Daniel, it said. He looked over his shoulder at the picture that sat next to his computer. After all, that was why she had to leave you. He walked over to the desk and picked up the picture running his fingers over the polished silver frame. It was a photo of himself and Rebecca, taken two years ago during a summer trip to Pyralis. They were standing in front of the ruins of an ancient temple of Uvelkum, built on a cliff overlooking the sea. The sun was going down, and the sky had turned a spectacular shade of pink, which contrasted with the warm yellow color of the temple stones. 
Rebecca was wearing an outfit she had bought the previous day, a multicolored sarong and a red halter top that was open in back. She was nestled up against him in the picture, one hand on his chest as she turned to face the camera. The rays of the setting sun reflected off the golden tan skin of her back and face, making her glow beautifully against his own darker skin. We were so happy, he thought, setting it down and wiping a tear from the corner of his eye. I hope she still is. Daniel had trained for four years to hone his powers, giving them as much of his attention as the classes he took for his degree in medical technology. While he had become more skillful in how he used his abilities, particularly his psychic healing, his actual power level had not improved. When they had finally graduated last year, it was obvious that Daniel would never be a stronger psi than he currently was, and the Hive insisted that Rebecca be assigned to a breeding cell. Since Daniel and Rebecca were members of the Hive now, they had taken part in the decision along with every other voice in the Gestalt, and despite their feelings about it, they knew that it was the only rational choice. The Hive's reproductive specialists had provided a lot of data for the Gestalt to consider, projections about the future of the Psy Collective and its interactions with Mundanes. Everyone agreed that a confrontation was coming with the Mundies, probably within the next hundred years. No one wanted it, but the inherent violence of mundane society and their fear of evolutionary obsolescence made it almost inevitable. When it happened, the Psy Collective would need to be strong enough and numerous enough to win the ensuing conflict if they wanted to avoid being exterminated. Every Psy had to do his or her part to get them to that point, no matter what it cost them personally. Failing to do so was not merely selfish, it was suicidal. Daniel understood all of this on an intellectual level. He and Rebecca had seen all of the sobering facts of their situation as part of the hive's shared consciousness. The decision for her to join a breeding cell had been both necessary and obvious. Their parting had been full of tears, but they had accepted it as the price that each of them had to pay for the sake of the greater good. In the privacy of his own head, though, Daniel had found that those logical arguments faded in comparison to the emotional reality of his situation. He didn't resent Rebecca for joining the breeding cell. He wasn't even angry at the cell's other members, Brian, Sasha, and Fiona, for being with her when he couldn't. They were all his friends, and he had bonded with them so closely in the creche that he couldn't begrudge them any good thing. At the same time, though, he ached at the separation from Rebecca, and seeing her belly swollen with Brian's child instead of his filled him with a quiet and intensely personal sort of pain. He sighed. You're wallowing, he told himself. She's not coming back. Be grateful you had as much time together as you did, and move on with your life. If only it were that easy. I just feel so useless. Maybe I could accept it if I had some sort of noble, heroic purpose to fulfill, but I'm a glorified technician. Where's the higher calling in that? Are you going to talk me into submission? Victor asked. Or are you going to shut up and hit me? Daniel's lip curled in sudden anger. 
Leading with the right side of his body, he darted in fast and threw a jab at Victor's face. Victor raised his left arm, easily blocking the punch. Immediately, Daniel pivoted the left side of his body forward in a reverse punch, driving his fist toward Victor's torso. Victor spun to Daniel's left, trying to dodge, but he couldn't get out of the way entirely. The fist made contact with his right rib cage, instead of the more vulnerable solar plexus that Daniel had been aiming for. Victor grunted at the hit, then grabbed the arm in a lock and aimed a right kick at Daniel's knee. Daniel anticipated the attack and shifted his weight to his back leg. He drew up his left leg, evading the kick, then snapped it forward, striking Victor again in the ribs with his heel. Victor released his arm and stepped back into a defensive posture. He let out a ragged curse, pain etched on his face from the force of Daniel's blow. Daniel hesitated, wondering if in his anger he had broken one of Victor's ribs. In that moment of indecision, Victor gestured with one hand, and a line of invisible telekinetic force picked Daniel up, spun him head over heels, and threw him to the mat, knocking the wind out of him. Victor had him in a painful submission hold within seconds, and Daniel slapped the mat twice, conceding the round. That was a cheap shot, he muttered. Victor chuckled. You're fast, Daniel, he said, offering him a hand up. But you're soft. You don't have a killer's instincts. It doesn't matter how good you are in competition. If you hesitate like that on the street, you're dead. Give him a second or two and a strong mage can hit you with a lightning bolt. A vamp can hit you with a domination gaze. Hells, even a Mundy can pull a gun on you. And a teak can throw you around like a rag doll. That too. Well, Victor amended with a wry smirk. Only the really good ones. They sparred a while longer, and Daniel won five out of the next twelve rounds. By that time, one of Victor's classes was coming in, and his assistants put the children through a series of warm-up exercises while he and Daniel hit the showers. You aren't the only one who's frustrated by some of the hive's decisions, he said, as Daniel worked the soap over his skin and let the hot water wash away the sweat from their workout. I don't see much choice about it, though, Daniel said. I mean, I don't like it, but I understand the need. Victor made a sound of disagreement. The Hive is going about this all wrong. They have a long history of dangling possibilities in front of people and then snatching them away again. Did you know they promised me a breeding cell after my first tour of duty with MID? I'll be finishing my third next month, and they're still telling me that they haven't found the right fit for me. Daniel frowned. You're still trying for a breeding cell? With your teak as strong as it is, I assume that they put you on stud duty. Victor laughed bitterly. <laughs> yes and no. They've used my spunk to make a lot of kids, but only in the test tube. The only action I've gotten in the last five years was from a goddamned sample cup. Daniel was stunned at that. Why? I mean, you're strong, you're in good shape, you're good-looking. Victor raised an eyebrow. As far as I can tell, in my own limited ability to judge that sort of thing, Daniel amended, blushing, I would have thought the ladies would be lining up. Victor squeezed some shampoo into his hands and began working it into his long hair. Have you ever killed anyone, Daniel? he asked. Daniel froze. Um, no. I have, Victor said, mildly. 
Fifteen years with MID, Daniel. All over the world. Espionage, infiltration, sabotage, wet works. The military doesn't hire us to meet some kind of anti-discrimination quota. Psyops get the really ugly jobs. The kind where you can't afford to use magic that someone might trace back and find out who is responsible. He stuck his hair under the shower and began rinsing it out. I have had to kill quite a lot of people over the years. Now, how many of our ultra-empathic, bleeding-heart females do you think are actually comfortable with having those kinds of memories inside their heads? Daniel grimaced. I can think of a couple who could handle it, but they're psyops too. Plus, they're kind of into each other. Victor snorted at that. Exactly. Active psyops don't get pregnant, and most of the women who retire from it have this thing about not wanting to relive the experience. He shook his head. Plus, somehow I've gotten the reputation for being too rough. I don't know where the hell that got started. Daniel smirked. Maybe they were thinking of your sparring matches. I know I'm going to need to use some psi healing when I get home. <laughs> Wuss. The Westfall cadets had finished their warm-ups by the time Daniel and Victor came out of the locker rooms, and the teaching assistants had called a five-minute break before Victor would begin today's lesson. The current class was intermediate practical combat arts, and the students ranged between the ages of 13 and 16. Most of them were now chatting in small groups, either verbally or in gestalt, but others were meditating to focus their powers, and a few were doing some light sparring with each other, using moves they had already learned. Daniel smiled, remembering his own classes. The five-minute break was a test in itself. How you used your free time in the Somnok was as important as what you did when the Kano was actually teaching. The best students were the ones who figured that out early. Kano Victor! Daniel looked up and saw one of the students, a girl of maybe fourteen or fifteen, come running to them from across the room. She was fairly average-looking, with a heart-shaped face and slightly pudgy cheeks, but she moved with enough grace and poise that he could tell she was one of the better students. She had mousy brown hair that had been streaked with gold highlights, and her dark brown eyes looked vibrant and excited. She came within arm's reach of Victor, and then bowed deeply. "'Hello, Abby,' Victor said, returning the bow. "'How are you today?' "'Great! Come see what I learned how to do!' She took him by the hand and led him across the room, to where a group of five other teens were standing in a ragged circle. Most of them looked nervous as Victor approached, but they bowed appropriately, and he returned the gesture. "'Now watch this!' Abby said, stretching out her hands. Immediately, the other teens stopped fidgeting and moved into a triangular formation, all of them evenly spaced about twelve decimeters apart on all sides. Abby took up the position at the head of the triangle, and together they stood at attention. At some unspoken signal, the cadets began a warm-up drill, punching and kicking the air as they shifted through the different bepa, or forms, used to teach attack and defense. They moved quickly and fluidly, as Daniel would have expected for students of this rank, but as he looked closer, he saw something else. Not only were they performing the bepa perfectly, but they were doing so in perfect unison. Even their breathing was perfectly in sync. 
Bloody hells, Daniel thought in amazement. They're in a gestalt. She didn't even touch them, and they're in a perfect gestalt. The cadets finished the drill and bowed in unison to Victor. A shudder ran through them as Abby broke the link, and then she turned and looked around at them, beaming proudly. Very impressive, Victor said, approval in his voice. He turned to one of the students. Lysa, show me the first five bepa in the drill, please. Lysa bowed to Victor and then ran through the bepa again, performing them flawlessly. Thank you, he said. Very impressive indeed, he added in a lower voice, turning back to Abby. Lysa's form has been sloppy for months, but you seem to have cured that. Abby nodded enthusiastically. I was thinking we could use this to help the other students get better. I haven't tried it with more than a few of them, but I'm pretty sure I could do the whole class at once. It's really not that hard once you get them together. I have no doubt you could, Victor agreed. I'll discuss it with the elders at our next meeting and see what they think. He put his hands on her shoulders and smiled fondly. Well done, Abby. She blushed at the praise, reaching up to put her hands over his. Daniel saw more than respect in her eyes as she looked at him. It was adoration. We'll be starting in another minute or two, Victor said to her, and I need to make some preparations. I'll talk to you after class. He gently removed his hands from hers, and they bowed to each other. Then Abby turned back toward her friends. That was amazing, Daniel said to Victor, as they moved back to the front of the Somnok. I've never seen someone that young pull together a gestalt like that without touching them. It's more than that, Victor said. Those children were some of my worst students in this cohort. I suspect they won't be any more. Abby took her own skills and imprinted them on the others. Scary. How strong do you think she is? One of the strongest I've seen. Victor looked back at her from across the room, a strange expression in his eyes. She's the brightest star in Westfall, and she's a foundling. If that's not irony, I don't know what is. A foundling? Daniel said, surprised. Power like that, and she was born to Mundy's? Hard to believe, isn't it? Victor agreed. She's adjusting well to life in the creche, though. Already talking about joining a breeding cell when she graduates. Whoever gets the privilege of siring on her is going to have the strongest children in the whole damned hive. Daniel's eyes widened. He finally understood Victor's expression. Gods, Vic, she's just a kid. You're her Kano. I won't always be her Kano, Victor said. And she's growing up fast. I'm the one who found her after her parents died, Daniel. She trusts me. She hasn't had time to be poisoned by hive gossip. When she's ready, I'll be waiting for her. Daniel let out his breath in a low whistle. The elders aren't going to like that. The elders can kiss my ass, Victor said, his voice quiet but determined. Listen to me, Daniel. If you spend your life trying to make other people happy... You're going to end up getting used, stepped on, exploited, and finally discarded. The elders can talk all they want about the destiny and future of the Psy race, but what it comes down to is that they want you to spend the rest of your life slaving away to feed somebody else's kids. 
and they will feed you just enough promises and allow you just enough comfort to make sure that you keep giving them what they want from you. Daniel drew back in shock. Yeesh, Vic. That's a little harsh, don't you think? Fifteen years, Victor said fiercely, pointing at himself. Take it from someone who learned the hard way, Daniel. If you want to make something out of your life, if you ever want to amount to more than what you are right now, then sooner or later you're going to have to go outside the lines the hive has drawn for you. He turned to walk away, then paused, looking over his shoulder. When you're ready to do that, you give me a call. And that's the end of Chapter 3. Come back next time when Daniel gets some advice from his friend Kevin. Abraham Lincoln said, Writing, the art of communicating thoughts to the mind through the eye is the great invention of the world, enabling us to converse with the dead, the absent, and the unborn at all distances of time and space. So, step across the barriers with me, and let's see what I've been able to communicate this week. It's time for the weekly writing report. This update covers the week of November 7th through November 13th. I wrote 4,750 words this week, over the course of 7 hours, for an average writing speed of 679 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 210 days without breaking my chain. This was a good, solid, largely unremarkable week for writing. I never broke a thousand words in a single day, but I made some time for writing every day, managing between 400 and 900 words each time. I finished another sex scene in Honor Bound, probably the last one for this book, and did some setup for the last act, when our heroes will face their biggest challenge yet. I also wrote and recorded an author's note for the Drabblecast's production of Maternal Instinct, which was released on the night of November 13th. I syndicated that episode in this podcast feed, so if you missed it, go back and check it out, because they did a great job with it. Honor Bound is now in Chapter 30, and the manuscript is over 80,000 words. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. 
The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.